0: Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday, the 31st of March. I'm Anthony Day and this week we're talking about meat and climate change. How is meat linked to climate change? Can what you eat have an effect on global warming? Yes, is the answer from the Humane Society of the United States. And we'll meet two people from that organisation in a moment and they will explain how and why it's true. Don't forget that links to my stories and this week a complete transcript of the interview are available at anthonyday.blogspot.com First, some headlines this week. Although Donald Trump appears to have failed to dismantle Obamacare, it looks as though he'll have more success in repealing Obama's clean air legislation. EPA chief Scott Pruitt says that this will permit cheaper coal-fired power and create more mining jobs. It's good news, he says, for industry and for the environment. Exactly how he quantifies the benefits to the environment is not clear, but of course in his view it can't do any harm because he refuses to believe that CO2 emissions have anything to do with climate change and rejects the scientific evidence. This is in direct contradiction of statements on the EPA website. The move away from coal seems to be gathering pace across the world. In 2016 there was a 48% fall in planned coal units and a 62% drop in new starts. Most of this is due to changing policies in India and China. See the Boom and Bust 2017 report produced by Coal Swarm the Sierra Club and Greenpeace. It's at endcoal.org. I mentioned last time that 2016 was yet another hottest year on record. The World Meteorological Organisation reports climate breaks multiple records in 2016 with global impacts. It expects extreme and unusual weather trends to continue in 2017. You can read the press release at public.wmo.int. Turning to transport news, the right one, an electric plane, could carry 150 people on journeys of less than 500 miles within the next 10 years, according to reports from the BBC. That could make London to Paris electric flights a reality. EasyJet is said to be interested, although the plane is not yet in development. The key issue is battery technology, which is developing rapidly but has not yet reached the necessary power-to-weight ratio. The problem is that as batteries get more and more energy dense, we've seen that they can catch fire or explode. There will also be a need for a completely new regulatory framework. A TED Talk you should see. Styrofoam, Expanded polystyrene is a versatile plastic used for throwaway cups, cutlery and toys, and for packaging goods like TVs, washing machines and so on. It's generally thrown away because styrofoam can't be recycled economically. But maybe not anymore. Ashton Kofa explains in this video how he and his classmates have worked out how to convert styrofoam into activated carbon as used in water filters. And now to the main event. Today we have two guests on the Sustainable Futures Report. Uh, First, Christy Middleton, who is a Senior Food Policy Director for the Humane Society of the United States. She's author of a number of articles in this field, including one which caught my eye, The Chicken in the Room at the Paris Climate Talks. That's something we must talk about later. She's also just published a book, Meatless. Transform the way you eat and live, one meal at a time. That's published in the United States, but you can get it um, for the Kindle uh, via Amazon, wherever you are. And our other guest is Helen Howard, Dr. Helen Howard, who is formerly an environmental nutrition research fellow at the Loma Linda University in California. She's now a freelance sustainability researcher Her key interests focus on the potential contribution of sustainable diets to climate change mitigation and she's published a number of articles in scientific journals on food and the environment. So welcome to you both. Thank you very much for taking part.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: Okay, so what we want to talk about today is the link between climate change and meat consumption. So that's got to be our first question. Helen, can you explain how that works?
2: Sure, yeah. So there's a few things to mention here, um, starting with the um, total greenhouse gas emission contribution that the livestock sector makes. And that is around 15% according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. Um, And this this, is just worth pointing out there that there's some uh, interesting... Issues related to the direct greenhouse gas emissions from the animals um, so here we have methane and nitrous oxide being the main um the main contribution comes from livestock for those two key two key greenhouse gas emissions and a really important thing to mention here is that methane has a much shorter atmospheric lifetime than carbon dioxide. And we know that carbon dioxide is the current focus of climate change policy efforts. But actually, methane has a higher warming potential than carbon dioxide and coupled with the shorter lifetime in the atmosphere could really be key to achieving short term reductions in temperature and avoiding those dangerous tipping points. And we also see that indirect greenhouse gas emissions are very important as well. So this is, for example, from land used to feed crops and mainly in the Change of land use, so for example, deforestation. So, in the Brazilian Amazon, as an example, 70% of deforestation is directly linked to livestock production. And this is really important because we're losing really important carbon stores there and interfering with the natural carbon cycle. And land use is really crucial for meeting climate change goals. So we were really looking to offset and store greenhouse gas emissions through various uh, land use. So for example, restoring natural habitats to forests. And currently animal agriculture uh, takes up 30% of all ice free land. And an interesting report just out last week from researchers at the University of Aberdeen showed that 85% of the UK's total land footprint is associated with meat and dairy production. And last year, researchers from Cambridge University showed that a 50% reduction in calories from animal products in the UK combined with restoring the land spread from animal agriculture to its natural habitat would actually reduce UK emissions by about eighty percent. So right, this let, is huge. Let me huge. just
0: clarify that point. You're saying a fifty percent reduction in calories from uh, from meat. You mean that? Do, do you mean by that that if we ate fifty percent less meat in the UK, that would have that eighty percent reduction in emissions?
2: So that's fifty percent reduction in calories from animal products, are so not just meat. Oh, okay. Mainly, mainly coming from meat, the, the greenhouse gas impact share. And that's coupled with restoring the land that would no longer be used for animal agriculture to its natural habitat, which would obviously store carbon it would forests and grasslands and so right. on.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, be, be, before I move on to what we eat if we don't eat meat, um, Christy, can I turn to you? Because I understand that the Humane Society focuses very much on meat reduction tell me a bit about the campaign that you are working on at the moment
1: Right, well thanks for asking about that. So I think when people hear about the Humane Society, they tend to think about our work helping cats and dogs and our organization both in the US and in our sister organization, Humane Society International. We do a lot of that through providing free and low cost spay neuter services. We also work to help wildlife and and animal fighting. So um, we're involved in a lot of different campaigns and programs, but my organization or my team at the organization specifically works to help institutions with reducing the amount of meat they're serving and adding more plant-based options to their menus. And we do this because it's, and it's an animal protection organization, we would be remiss if we weren't addressing the area where the most animals that are used in our industrial food system are institutionally abused. And that is in the meat industry within the United States alone, 9.5 billion animals who are factory farmed and the global total, of course, billions more than that. And so we work to help end factory farming through getting schools, hospitals, colleges and universities and others to reduce the amount of meat they're serving. But of course, as it turns out, what is good for animals and ending their suffering on factory farms is also really good for our health as well. So there's a lot of research that indicates that eating less meat, eating more plant-based foods, or even going completely to a plant-based diet can help with addressing a lot of our chronic preventable diseases like heart disease, cancer, stroke, type 2 diabetes and even reducing the obesity epidemic and then of course environmental sustainability and that includes biodiversity because animal agribusiness has so much um, at stake in terms of as Helen mentioned decimating our Amazonian rainforest and other really precious natural landscapes and so we're destroying biodiversity when we plow down forests and create grazing land for cattle and other animals.
0: Well, my question is, are you you both recommending that everybody should be vegetarian?
1: Well, I'll take that uh, from the Humane Society's perspective. We advocate for what we call the three R's, which is reducing, replacing, and refining. So reducing the amount of animal products in your diet through something like a meatless Monday or identifying other ways that you can reduce, uh, replacing those products with plant-based products, and then refining your diet by choosing higher welfare sources if you do continue to eat meat, eggs, and dairy. And so in my book, Meat Less, I go over all of the reasons that more and more people are eating less meat, um, or if they're going vegetarian or vegan, and outline a lot of the common obstacles to diet change. And finally, I help with providing simple tips and tricks, as well as recipes and other resources for people who are interested in getting started. So it doesn't have to be 100%. Any movement in that direction is a good start. But I know Helen probably has an opinion about that too, so I'd love to hear what she thinks.
0: Well, indeed. Uh, Actually, I'm very interested to hear that because a lot of people say to me, you're uh, you're into sustainability, you're into environmental protection. How can you be if you're not a vegetarian? Because I'm not a vegetarian.
2: Yeah, you were asking, does everybody need to be vegetarian? Um, So there's a couple of studies just to mention on that. So one looked at different types of diets. This was published by Bringle Sunatel from Chalmers University last year. They looked at different types of diets and how much um, greenhouse gases result, like net greenhouse gases, and for the vegan diet, it was actually net negative. And like I was saying, that really frees up carbon budget for other areas where reductions are more difficult to come by, especially in the short term. So the nearer we get towards vegan definitely means that we have more of a carbon budget to play with. And also just to mention again the study from Cambridge researchers where they looked at a 50% reduction in animal products consumed in the UK. And that combined with restoring the land spared to its natural habitat so they were looking at a 50% reduction combined with the land sparing and they came to the 80% reduction of UK emissions so again that's not saying a hundred percent but it really depends what that land is used for afterwards.
0: Um, but uh, a lot of people don't know very much about the link between climate change and food and maybe they don't want to know because a lot of environmentalists do say you've got to be a vegetarian if you're serious. Um, What do you think about that Helen?
2: Yeah well if we look at the evidence so let's focus on climate change. Um, So a publication last year from Researchers from the University of Oxford, for example, found that a fully vegan diet applied at the global level would reduce food-related greenhouse gas emissions by 70%. Now, this is really significant because the more we reduce food-related greenhouse gases, means that we're freeing up carbon budget for other um, areas that are more difficult or may take longer to achieve reductions, such as the energy sector, for example. Mm. So, really key things to consider there, the potential of the kind of low-hanging fruit that food-related greenhouse gas reductions represent should really be taken seriously as climate change mitigation policy.
0: Yes, uh yes. But as you say, there are other ways of doing it and we aren't going to persuade everybody to be vegan and we're certainly not going to persuade everybody to be vegetarian. Um, So this is one part of uh, a move towards reducing the the global carbon footprint. What other things should people be doing?
1: Well, I'll dive in and I'll share that what we're seeing really is a move toward reduction in the United States. There's a publication called Meeting Place, which is M-E-A-T-I-N-G, Meeting Place, so it's a trade publication for the meat industry and they conducted their own research just last year and published their findings and one of the things they found was that 70 percent of meat eaters are saying that they're eating a non-meat protein at least one meal once a week and that figure is up 22 percent from just a year ago so i think while we may not see people shifting from vegetarian to vegan and certainly not overnight people are definitely interested and I think more than ever before in eating less meat. And that will certainly have an impact. And in the UK, it could be through a meat free Monday in the U S we have a meat less Monday program. And the idea behind that is to take a holiday for meat just one day out of the week to get started. There's also the idea of being a flexitarian, which is a mostly plant-based diet, and eating meat or dairy every once in a while, or doing something like eating vegan before 6 p.m. But so many more people are interested in doing this, and the food industry is responding, such as Veggie Pret in the U.K., which was just a pop-up restaurant, and it was so popular that they're now talking about making it a permanent fixture. And in the U.S., of course, we're seeing even fast food chains like Burger King, the king of burgers now has a veggie burger on its menu and you can get it at every location across the country so i do feel like people are better understanding the reasons and the impact that their diet choices can have not only on their own health and animals but on the environment and they're interested in making changes but sometimes they're not really sure where to get started and those are just a few ways that they could do so
0: let me follow up on a couple of points first of all i'll show my ignorance um can you give an example of a non-meat protein
1: Sure, I think beans is probably one of the easiest and uh, most widely available. In addition to that, it's very inexpensive. So beans are a great source of protein, and they're also full of fiber and phytochemicals. So they're full of cancer-fighting chemicals as well, and they're available pretty much anywhere. You can get them canned, you can get them dry, and you can create them in all kinds of amazing recipes. And pretty much every culture around the world has their own variety of beans that they love and it's a great way of getting a really clean protein
0: right and they're quite a lot cheaper than meat as well aren't they
1: Absolutely. I was just yesterday in the supermarket and roughly $1.19 to $1.99 for a pound of beans and meat prices were anywhere from $4.99 to $9.99 a pound. So quite a bit cheaper. And then the other hidden cost, of course, when we are purchasing meat is that we are, of course, causing the environmental devastation we're talking about. In addition to the impacts of climate change, we're talking about huge amounts of waste, animal waste that's being created from pollution to the manure that are um, that are polluting the soil. So all of those are the hidden costs in our meat purchases.
0: Let me go back to the other point you made. You mentioned a pop-up restaurant in the UK. Um, maybe you can send me a link to that so people can follow that up when they uh, look on, on the blog. What was it called again?
1: Oh, well, this is Pret a Manger, which you probably see all over London if you're in oh, London. Pret a Manger, I
0: didn't hear it clearly. Oh yes, I've, I've heard of that. <laughs>
1: okay, and then they have a veggie Pret, so it's just a vegetarian uh, version of a chain.
0: Veggie yeah. Pret? No, I hadn't heard about that. Yes, okay. And
1: London, London just got its first ever vegan fried chicken restaurant earlier this year. So I don't know if that's really to be considered healthy, but there are definitely more and more options that are becoming available.
0: How can you get vegan fried chicken?
1: I don't know the answer to that, but I'm (laughs) interested in finding out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Helen, you've been involved, I believe, in calculating the carbon savings that institutions are, are making through through menu options uh, tell me a bit more about that
2: yeah sure so basically i'm using published scientific data on the greenhouse gas footprints of different foods to measure the impact of changes made to food purchasing and obviously through menus so for example if an institute reduced beef purchase by 50% and replaced that with beans fruit then I would be able to measure the greenhouse gas impact of that change. And I will be assessing those emissions periodically. So before any menu changes have taken place, And after any menu changes have taken place and at certain points in time after that as well and this is a really great opportunity for institutes to assess their food related greenhouse gas emissions and it comes at a time when they're actively seeking to do that and are being required to reduce all greenhouse gas emissions across campus.
0: Right so you're talking about academic institutions and hospitals perhaps and uh, other public sector organisations?
2: Yeah, so right now we're just focusing on universities, but definitely we'll be including those other types of institutions too.
0: Okay. Uh, I think you've also been involved, Christy, in working with institutions uh, on reducing their carbon footprint.
1: Right. So institutions are purchasing a lot of food from schools to hospitals and universities, even the military and correctional facilities. So All of these institutions are looking at ways to offer more healthful and more sustainable options to their guests. And one intervention that we've offered is through plant-based culinary instruction. And we've now trained several thousand chefs to create delicious food, filling, nutritious, and all plant-based options for their menus. And I'll share just a couple of examples of some of the things that institutions are doing here. One of those is a case study from University of North Texas, which is in Denton, Texas, and just about 30 minutes or so north of Dallas. So if you know anything about the geography there, it's not really a hotbed of animal activism. It's really in the heart of cattle country. Yeah. And yeah. they have been receiving all kinds of requests from students for vegan options and And so they took one of their five dining halls and made it totally vegan. And it turned out to be a massive success, generating all kinds of free publicity for the university, helping with student satisfaction. It went from serving about 100, 175 meals a day to 700 to over 1,000 meals per day, and also helped them with increasing sales of their dining plans. So it was a massive success, and they were able to reduce their carbon footprint. Another example is over at UC Berkeley. Um, They're part of this program called Menus of Change, which is put together by the Harvard School of Public Health and the Culinary Institute of America, which is the premier culinary institute here. And they're really trying to find ways to help Americans eat less food. saturated fat cholesterol sodium and other things just to make for healthier more sustainable menus so as a result of that uc berkeley created a concept a restaurant on its campus that they called brown's which was a sustainable cafe where they're really trying to focus more on plant-based foods and they created a dish they called the flipped plate and you can get it either totally plant-based or you can get it with some meat but the concept behind flipped Flipping the plate is looking at it through the lens of making vegetables the real center of the plate, and then if you do opt to have some meat or animal protein, then making that a very small portion. So you're going from the way we would usually look at a typical plate having uh, meat really as the center. Now vegetables are the center of the plate, and meat is the side, if it's on the plate at all. So there are really interesting interventions that institutions are doing to go about approaching this, and there's not really a one-size-fits-all, but I think it's really important for everyone to start thinking about ways that they can do their part.
0: Yes, it sounds like you've got some really interesting initiatives there. Um, If we are going to make uh, a significant difference, though, I can't see anybody or any politicians or any governments actually trying to restrict the operations of the agricultural sector. On the other hand, if consumers aren't buying the product, then that actually will reduce the production of of meat and so on. But Mm -hmm. uh, consumers won't stop buying meat unless they are confident and informed about what the alternatives are. So Mm -hmm. how are we going to address that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a a really wonderful point, and I think that consumers are increasingly interested in finding out more about the alternatives, and I think that's why we can see the U.S. market really – responding. So one example is the dairy industry, which is notorious methane emitter. And now there are all kinds of plant-based dairies from almonds and soy milk um, which are now pretty ubiquitous Mm -hmm. to more exotic milks that are coming out all the time like cashew cream or hazelnut cream Ben & Jerry's which is a a subsidiary of Unilever one of the world's biggest food companies came out with six new flavors of its delicious ice cream but it happens to be totally plant-based totally vegan and then Breyers another chain just recently came out with a couple of flavors and it's a much less premium brand so they definitely see that there is consumer interest and i think that as there are more products out there that are still delicious that still have those same flavor profiles that we're used to eating that people will start trying these products and the market will respond as well
0: that's very interesting as we draw this to a close i'd like to ask each of you in turn helen first of all What one thing should people who listen to this do tomorrow to make a difference in order to reduce their carbon footprint? How can they do that in terms of what they eat?
2: Yeah, so the the easiest thing really, if you're going to start tomorrow, is just to find some recipes and really experiment and find things that you really like. So, find some vegan recipes to replace your kind of favorite meat and dairy dishes. And another really good thing is to look at substitutions. So, now this, like Christy mentioned, the, the vegan fried chicken, so if there's any kind of particular thing that somebody really loves, just look for the, the um, plant-based alternative and that's a great way to reduce your impact overnight.
0: Right. The thing is, of course, that more and more people are living, to a very large extent, on takeaways and ready meals. I don't see, maybe because I don't look for them, but I don't see vegetarian and vegan ready meals on the shelves. Kirsty, am I wrong there? Are they available?
1: There, there are quite a few brands. So I know Linda McCartney's got a wonderful brand of frozen meals that you could heat up at home. And certainly we have loads of them here. And I think it's really just identifying items like that. So, you know, we we our food is so deeply embedded in our culture and our daily routine. So it's just a matter of sort of tweaking our habits. And that's one of the things that I talk about in my book is just finding an option that works for you. As Helen just mentioned, look at what you're already eating and just find something that's a real simple substitute or a real simple trade-off. And then another really critical element to this is building community because our, the way that we eat is so heavily influenced by our friends and family. Walter Willett at the Harvard School of Public Health talks about how obesity is contagious. If our close friend is obese, we're 57% more likely to be obese. But health is also contagious, too. So why don't we encourage our friends and family to join us on this journey? Because not only will we be more likely to succeed, but our impact will be multiplied.
0: Well, that's very encouraging. And have you got one thing that people should do tomorrow, starting tomorrow?
1: Well, given it's a Thursday, I would say probably a meatless Thursday. Um, And, you know, you really, you could do it any day of the week, but I think it's to start something and really to have a concrete plan in mind. Don't just think I'm going to try to eat less meat. Say I'm going to do it at least one day a week or at least one meal a day. I'm going to eat meat less and you'll be more likely to be successful.
0: I'd like to thank you both very much for an interesting discussion and wish you both success in the campaign.
1: Thank you so much and happy Meatless Thursday or Meatless Wednesday (laughs) for (laughs) today.
2: Thank you, Anthony.
0: And thank you to Christy Middleton and Helen Harwatt speaking on behalf of the Humane Society of the United States. Thank you also to their colleague Elizabeth Walker who produced a complete transcript of the interview which you'll find on the blog page at anthonyday.blogspot.com There are also links to resources which they asked me to pass on. Helen says for the food replacements that Christy and I both mentioned in the UK the best ones are made by fries and are available in some of the major supermarkets and most health stores including Holland and Barrett. Also, Sainsbury's have just launched a great range of vegan cheeses. And Christy adds, here's a link to where your listeners can find Meatless. That's her book. And it's available on Amazon and in the Amazon Kindle store. And here's a source on animal agriculture's impact on biodiversity. Again, it's a complex link. You'll find it on anthonyday.blogspot.com. And that's all for another week. Next week I'm talking about business ethics and sustainability and I'm launching a Patreon page. If you don't know what that is, go across to patreon.com. patreo dot I'll see you over there shortly. This is Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Have a great week.